breeze. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another triple stack of episodes from the Jack Benny Show and the Phil Harris Show. We start out tonight with the 1943 episode, the third episode actually, with Orson Welles taking over for Jack Benny. The title is Murder at Midnight, and it's from March 28th, 1943. Now this one's interesting for a couple reasons. One is that it is kind of a standard Jack Benny episode, and it's neat to see Orson how he's going to work within a standard format instead of a, a, a you know a modified format or, or at least not as modified as as the last two episodes we've had. Also, in this episode has Ed Beloin. I love Ed Beloin when he appears on the on the show, and and I just love his voice. He's one of the writers, of course. But I'll get into that in the little intro that I do from earlier. That's going to be on next. Uh, this is 2018, by the way, and I'm just throwing on a new intro for a couple reasons. One is this particular episode went through probably my biggest upgrade of any of the uh, of the Orson episodes. It uh, the original I had didn't sound so hot, and uh, I had two choices: one from the Jack Benny collection, and one from the Orson Welles collection. And I listened to them both. And they both had pluses and minuses to them, but I decided to go with the Orson Welles collection just so you could hear what the sound was like on, on Orson's copies. And um, this one, it was remastered. I think they, they remastered them a little too tinny for my taste, but the sound quality and the, of the voices is so good that I thought it was worth bringing you this um, episode in this way. So here's Orson's own copy, I believe. And then after that... We have the Jack Benny Show from 1953, from March 29th. It's about Mississippi Gambler is is the title, and I'll get into that some more. Plus, I'll share my donut story that I was going to share last time, so you hear that as well. And uh, the episode, again, has been upgraded since last time I presented it, so I think you'll enjoy that one as well. And to close out the night, we have the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show, with he doesn't often have guests on his show but tonight he does he has guests martin and lewis dean martin and jerry lewis get a chance to visit the set of of the um, phil harris show so i think you're really going to enjoy that it's going to be a packed night great shows all around nice sound i hope you enjoy all the shows and we'll see you next time well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, we're going to have some fun today. We have, uh, we're focusing on Orson Welles as he uh, took over the Jack Benny show for a number of weeks. We've already done the first two. This is the third episode of Orson taking over. And we are joined by uh, our Orson Welles specialist here, uh, Vincent. Hey, Vincent. Hello. So good to have you back, man. Um, good and, to be here. And we also, <laughs> very good. We also have Zach. Hey, Zach. And we have Kathy Fuller Seeley, of course. Uh, and uh, w one thing, well, uh, we're not going to mention that. We'll move on. So, uh, sorry, I was, I'll just tell you what I was going to mention because my because my listeners go, "What was you going to do?" I was going to mention you the talk Jack about convention, but in reality, this is going to be aired after the Jack Benny convention. So, it's, mm -hmm. go to the Jack Benny convention in 2024. <laughs> 
this. 2023s will be over. Uh, anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed the convention if you came. So, because uh, that's for us coming up this next weekend. So we're excited about it. And Vincent's even going to be there. So, and we're doing a panel on Orson, which is cool. So you can go back and dig for that wherever they have it on the internet. I know it's going to be stored somewhere and I'll try and air it too if I can. Uh, anyway, oh, my phone's going off. So hang on, checking my phone. Oh, it, no, it's my, it's my alarm. I don't know why it's going off at eight o'clock, but hey, best time to do it is while you're recording a podcast. So... <laughs> <laughs> so this episode has uh, a, a murder mystery they decided to do that uh, at the end of it and i think that's a really cool thing to add i love and i mentioned it before but i'm going to mention it again because i really stood out in this one how much i love jack being gone in some ways <laughs> i love jack <laughs> but to, to be able to, to focus on the regular, what he just uh, said <laughs> Because I love the fact that like Mary and Don have a, have a kind of extended scene together. And I love that. And I love how you, you'll have Dennis and Don have, have a scene and you'll have, it's just, it's the mixing of characters in ways you're not used to getting is so wonderful. And then whenever Orson's on with Rochester, there's just this bizarre, he, how Orson can do this. He must be an actor or something because the way he can, <laughs> he can, he can say the line and yet make you feel like he has nothing but absolute respect and admiration for Rochester. It just, mm -hmm. it's like he, everybody else, when he's joking with, he's trying, he's trying to have a little bit of an edge when he's joking with Phil and he's trying to be a little annoyed with Dennis and, and you know, trying to, but with Rochester, he's strictly is like, he'll say the lines, but they, but it just feels like, this guy really, really cares about Rochester, and it, and it really comes through, and I love that. Um, I wouldn't want to place any more importance on this tidbit in, in regards to this specific situation, but this was a man who, um, his, one of his first major outings in the theater in this country was, was producing an all-African-American cast of Macbeth. Um, yeah. Now I'll be nineteen thirty four or something like that. It was like yeah. So he, he and yep. he was and he always carried on his progressive politics regardless of what people around him were telling him. So um, my my supposition is that 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 could be a comfortability thing of just like you know I understand that you're you're a pretty well educated man who's being asked to dumb down his language. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know. But I mean, it's also could just be he responds to that material in a way that he's not having to with the rest of the cast. I don't know, yeah, but yeah. it is interesting. It's, it's yeah, there is a, there's a very like, there is, there's also a very like, like there's a, a greater like understanding and appreciation between each performer that you notice. So yes. whereas every, whereas everybody else is like, like obsessed with Orson right. being this genius. Rochester is just kind of like, you're just literally living in my boss's house until Jack gets back or whatever the, whatever the exact situation is. There's no real like Star Trekian logic we can really place on that living situation right here. So um, well, the other thing I noticed in this episode that is more pronounced than the first two is they get more into the characters interrelating to each other, but they're trying to keep their characters the way that Jack would response so you end up with mary saying things that she wouldn't normally say she jokes about how yeah. uh how don is fat and she normally isn't the one who says that right that's jack 
and but they don't have jack so someone's got to say something so they so they're giving the lines to people that so they they're doing a good job of of bending the character to the line and so that so it still works it's just you just go oh that's kind of different uh for her to do that or for or for dennis to say what he says or for phil to do this thing um and phil they just kind of in this whole series just kind of spun him up and let him go like a top so this is like just absolute phil crazy man phil and it's great um he even uses his orson wells this time but then he also says it about the other he might say it about radcliffe i can't remember which one but he says somebody's name with that same lilt that same sort of effect and i thought that was funny but anyway vincent what uh what are your takeaways on this one yeah, so I see a couple um, larger trends in this one. I think one is I see Wells, you know, coming into his own as a, you know, kind of a, a host or a leader of an episode. I mean, a couple things come to my mind. Some of some of them are small. You know, we've been tracing um, sort of Wells as he eventually tries to do his own comedy show. Not quite like this, but a similar. And in some ways, I see him. Um, you know, easing into that role. There are a couple of moments where somebody messes up and he sort of makes like a Jack, like, uh, you know, quick joke about how the joke didn't work out or, you know, one joke fell flat. It was literally a sight gag about the something happening. And he even like stops and says like, nothing like a sight gag on the radio, but it clearly didn't seem like it was scripted. And so I see these moments of him sort of easing into that role and really becoming more comfortable presenting comedy and sort of doing some small improv. So I really liked that. The other thing, though, that I see on that psych gag thing just for a second, because it sounds like that psych gag, we we probably all noticed it. Uh, It actually happens in this episode, and then they revisit it again in the next episode, which seems like a crazy thing to do. But it's like the Carrot Radcliffe and Gilroy are in here, and they one of them is bumping his head. Is kind of what the joke is about on the like it's a counter, and he's down under the counter or something, and he keeps hitting his head on the counter. But I don't know why they would go to that joke. And I don't know because it definitely is a visual gag. Like like Orson says, uh, obviously, they're doing it in real time because the audience is cracking up like crazy. But the home audience is not getting at all what's going on. And I, I, I tend to think that is probably a symptom of Jack not being there. Because I think that joke, Jack would have killed that joke and said, we can't do that. It, it's not going to work for the home audience. Because they hardly ever did something that was a strictly visual, uh, and in this case, it is. And so there's that whole you don't know quite what's going on, and they do it multiple times, and you're kind of lost at that point. And uh, anyway, that's they're, they're laying they're laying into it far more than they would on a normal basis. He would do one and done. He's not. This is the, these episodes are so odd outliers because they do kind of rely on your imagination in go, going into over overtime. Yes. Um, but, but it's rewarding in that respect too. Oh yeah. So. Uh, they are such a unique thing to have. I'm just so glad that Jack got sick and then got better, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just so glad that, that these exist and that they gave the chance of writer for the writers to stretch and the cast to stretch a little bit more than they usually do and things. I think it's great. But anyway, Vince, you were you're going on. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's one side of it. The other side of it though, is I see Wells becoming much more of a character in, in this than he was before, you know, the first two episodes that he's in this, it's really playing off of his persona as a celebrity you know, and we see elements of that, you know, he's still sort of like, 
bigger than life. Um, you know, he's into luxury, you know, they bring him in with the gong, but again, he gets it. They move away from like him being a spendthrift, him may, being like making really stupid decisions to really playing with him as a character, right? He suddenly gets running jokes like the gong and the trumpets when he enters, or every time he reads something, it's the, you know, the flip book effect. Yeah. And so we see these things recurring much more. And I actually find it very funny. I, I almost imagine that he could come in on a random episode a year later and they would just play with these sort of um, tropes that he's getting attached to. And so I really like that. And, uh, and I agree totally with that. Them. And they, it's too bad he didn't come back and do episodes every once in a while or take over for Jack every once in a while when Jack wanted to have a, a you know a week or two off or something because uh, he would – they would be fun. They would be fun little visits he would do, and he definitely could carry the show with the with the cast. I mean, you can't really say he could whether he could carry the show on its own or not. I mean, who knows? But mm. but it's just the cast is so brilliant. It kind of shows. I mean, if you never got Orson and and you strictly had Phil like just take over somewhat, you could you could write an episode with just all the background characters. I can't think of any other show you could really do that with where it would work successfully but this one it would well, you've got strong enough characters well remember when they did that deliberately the season opener where it's the, the tour bus going around to the celebrity homes and jack right. only gets yeah, yeah. the i get off here was his only line yeah he gets off show. he comes on the last what five minutes of the show or something yeah yeah, yeah. that showed how yeah. much he trusted his cast to pull it off without him and things that was great um it's just strange because other times he left but it was always before this like in the 30s the late 30s, early 40s, he uh, when when Carol Lombard died, uh, they just did a musical performance where the the cast was there, but they just played music, uh, where they could have done an episode um, without him. But it could be that, that they had such late last minute notice they didn't have time to yeah. write an episode. Yeah. And, and and he was just it was too somber, you know. Yeah. You those things you just can't laugh after a yeah. dear friend right but, right but, mm. but, yeah. but so i i think you i love the points you all are making about um being able to move now from emergency mode to sort of saying oh we've got a number of weeks to fill so um hooray that uh, so we'll build up more of the orison character we'll shift around more prominence to other people so i i really appreciate how you all um uh, uh see that they're they're they can now plan. It's not something the night before. Oh my God, what are we going to do? But right. we can sort of start to. We've got right. to have three here that we get. Well, to you can up. see. I mean, the first episode essentially is <clears throat> all about Orson and just how <clears throat> overpowering Orson is, and and having Phil back. Right. That that becomes yeah. that what that whole episode's about. And then the second episode is. Well, let's take the gang and go visit Orson's studio. That's a fun thing to do for an episode, and that becomes that episode. It's very sure hilarious. Going, oh wait, Jack's not back yet. Uh, well, let's bring up, let's do one of our murder mystery things, and then, and then of course next week it's going to be Red Riding Hood that they do, and then Jack comes back, and there's a whole episode about Jack coming back and seeing, talking to Orson, the whole thing, and the handoff back to Jack. So it really works up beautifully. As an arc, we can totally see how in each episode they could be, you can just picture the writer's brain going, okay, what are we going to do now? Oh, we'll do this. And they grab something that exists once they use up what they think that they're going to do with Orson. Then they're like, okay, let's put Orson into some of our skits and see how that works. And it works brilliantly. I, 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 I was really, 
I, I enjoyed this murder mystery skit probably more than because you hear all the Jack ones over and over again. So, so it was a lovely one. And I thought uh, Mary was in rare form. She really had her, the voice part working well for her in this. I mean, every, every single cast member, Jack's cast raises their game throughout this whole series of episodes, Mary included. Um, and she shows up, she's not in the first one because she's, I think taking care of Jack, but she shows up in the in the second one, and then in this, and then I think she's in all the rest of them. I don't, I think she only missed that one. But uh, anyway, uh, Vincent, do you have a, uh, other stuff? That yeah, you know? well, a couple stuff? things. Um, sure. I, you know, Buck, I just want to chastise you and say that you you shouldn't call it murder mystery. You should call it by its proper name, which is death at midnight or gunshot gunshot scream i thought that was really (laughs) (laughs) i really like that and you know it's also a a play on you know looking at a different side of wells's sort of body of work right so at the beginning of this play he's this um unrealistic artist and now they're looking at his um you know background in the shadow and sort of mystery and stuff like that so i thought that was really funny although of course still playing into that idea of him, him being a demanding director and taking the spotlight, but you know, it's a little bit toned down. So I really like that. Lastly, I just want to say that, um, you know, I liked how we began by talking about Wells and Rochester. Um, I, I think Wells, I mean, part of, you know, obviously is this um, history of pushing for, um, you know, the, the rights of African-Americans, which we've talked about in other episodes, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, the, the disagreement that Wells and uh, Wells had against Jack even um, for his treatment of Rochester. But I do think that this episode has a stark contrast to Wells's own, um, work and its representation of Asian Americans, Asian characters. It is something that his body of work really never dealt with in anything other than stereotypes. And we see this in this episode with this sort of, you know, Asian cook, Chinese cook, speaking fake Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a lot of other Wells's work, it's the same sort of Orientalist approach. And so it is a stark contrast even between Wells's, you know, I think really admi- 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 admirable approach to, um, you know, working with African-Americans and depicting them. And so, you know, I just want to make that clear that that comes up in this episode. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And it comes it's... up in a lot of the episodes and I don't think they ever get it worked out, even into as, as we, the rest of us have, have had talked about it, even uh, the, the Dennis, uh, the in Dennis the late Dan episodes on... of the television yeah. show, sometimes there yeah. would be. Really poor yeah. representation of Asian. There's there there's something to be said about folks like Wells and Groucho Marx, where their progressivism is highly lauded and highly touted. I mean, if you look in specific details, and if you read some of their publications later on in life, you start to see that okay, they are different for their time, but they carry similar outlooks on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, yeah. I mean, with the Marx Brothers, it's as simple as looking at a day at the races and looking at all God's children got rhythm, which is, you know, seems like it's far away from what the Marx Brothers would be in terms of their political views. And yet they're working at MGM and they are working under Thalberg. So they're not asking any questions, um, at least until Thalberg dies. So, you know, I it's. It is like very interesting contrast to kind of look at that interaction and then can juxtapose it with this Chinese cook. That's well, it's and as, as we watch these television episodes from the fifties that we we're starting to watch, and as we uh, experience these episodes, these uh, radio episodes, one thing that struck me that's never really struck me before—I didn't realize how uh, we always talk about in Star Trek 
right? Because I like to talk Star Trek sometimes. Uh, how groundbreaking Ahura's part was, and that it was a competent woman in a in a, in a, a job that it didn't matter that she was black or white or anything, and she did a beautiful job of it. And it and it really um, Martin Luther King noticed it and everything, and told her to keep the job when she was thinking about quitting and so forth. We we know about those stories, but George Takei, we don't really talk about that much. But but just having him as a competent person that's doing their job that is Asian. Um, I, I think that was just a wonderful thing to be able to present on television. Cause before that, you just didn't get that. You just had even parts that George Takei would play before that were various stereotypical parts. And um, certainly mm-hmm. his performance on uh, twilight zone was not seen for whatever, 50 years or something because they decided it was too, um, racially biased and things and then decided not to not to play that for various reasons although now you can watch it in whatever set you have of twilight zone because it's in all the sets now and i think they're on television too now but uh anyway but uh yeah it's just interesting to see how different um folks from different ethnic groups are treated throughout time in television and things um and it does show people say oh we haven't made any progress well in some ways we have i think um, anyway, uh, Kathy, did you have anything else for us in this one? Well, well, you all have mentioned uh, what uh, a larger than usual role Mary plays yeah. in this one. I think it's very uh, interesting for the fact that sometimes she's not very, um, she's aggressive against other women. And here calling um, um, uh, Miss Harrington, hello, Butch, was a little bit, uh, a little bit shocking. But um, yeah. Uh, what I really appreciated, though, was uh, in the murder mystery or the bang, bang, yell um, uh, of Mary's Mary's playing of the tough girl character um, uh, uh, in looking at her character over the history of the Benny show. Um, she had started imitating Mae West back in 1932 and 33 yes. when Mae West was a big Hollywood star and it was a way for her to channel. Uh, as opposed to her sort of 18-year-old flippity gibbet character at the time to play a knowing, sexually <laughs> powerful woman. In the 30s, she used a Mae West accent. This is shifting uh, uh, to um, that kind of tough girl accent of somebody we um, more associate with film noir. Yeah. And yet, uh, yeah. what interests me is that um, very few people in America were aware of something called film noir at this point, you know, I mean, so there were Barbara Stanwyck playing, you know, tough girl roles and things like that. And she's very good friends with Barbara Stanwyck. But of course it would take until after the war of looking back on these roles of sort of, of recognizing the role of the tough cigarette girl, the, 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 um, film, the uh, femme fatale, the uh, femme of film noir. And I really like, um, as I said, I, I really enjoy Mary's performances in those parts because yeah. she's, um, she's and this is one of her best in this one. I mean, yeah. right? I mean, she really captures it well. And just to you know, not to be picky or anything, but I believe it's bang bang scream, not bang bang yell. But okay. that's uh, all right. Besides the point, thank you. If you're nitpicky, you don't want Vincent to think we were stepping on his copyright of the bang bang scream. Yeah, I was about to go on a tangent, but please, please, Kathy, continue. No, no, but the one thing when you said, Daryl, that you enjoyed this more than some of the Benny ones, the one thing I missed 
was when the band plays the hurry music. Da -da 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 I can't, I can't not hear the sportsman. Uh, uh, yes. uh, you know. So uh, that's the, the one thing I would anticipate is how well taking this, that having the sportsman quartet would add a new layer to something they've been doing for years. See, so, and there you go. There's something nice job. I, I had not ever really thought about that, but you're right. They, cause the sportsman and the writers in, like we say, 46 on were, we're tweaking things and tuning things up even more, and and they did this series. This series of the murder, right. the, the bang bang scream skits, <laughs> become a whole different thing that adds a nuance to them with the adding of the sportsman. And yeah, you're right. You are exactly right. I, I did not think about that because oh, they're not on the show yet. There'll be another couple seasons before they get back. Yeah, sweet. It'll be interesting. It would be interesting too. I'll, I'm going to pay attention next time to see when do they first do the next bang bang scream skit with uh, the sportsman and and how far into the sportsman run run is that before they try that? I don't know, but uh, there you go. Somebody will look it up and uh, put it in our comments here or something, right? Uh, anyway, uh, Zach, you got anything else on this one? A uh, big thing that I notice in this episode eternally is that they change the line because they've used some of these small jokes specifically before. And the big one is um, counterfeit dollar bills are being passed all over town. And I got one of them. The bit was done before. And mm -hmm. the, the punchline was Carol Lombard is sitting on the Eagle. Um, mm -hmm. And in this one, it is Hedda Hopper is sitting on the Eagle. Now we can obviously know why that's changed. Right. Um, not, not the least of which being Jack's, you know, friendship with Carol, but also the fact that she's no longer with us. I found it funny that Orson Welles was making a Hedda Hopper gag because it wasn't too long prior that, oh, too long before prior that uh, Hedda Hopper uh, lit the fuse that would uh, go right under Luella Parsons' behind um, in regards to Kane. Uh, and, but Wells had always spoken very highly uh, or, or like been fond of Hedda. And later on would say, like, I understand why she did what she did in regards to Kane, because if she, if I if I'm a woman journalist and I have a scoop like that, I'm going to take it. So right. I just like I just and she would have Hedda would be a guest on the Orson Welles Almanac um, not too long after this, too. So it's, it's just interesting to kind of listen to Orson Welles poke fun at Hedda Hopper, knowing full well that <laughs> she uh, she's she's part of the reason that the the uh, the eventual Kane controversy kicked off the way it did. Right. Benson, this uh, makes me think a little bit about uh, Orson and what was going on in his life at this time. It seems like his career was a little bit on the wane maybe right before this. And so I was thinking maybe he yep. partially took this gig too to get him back in the public eye a little bit more and He's on one of the most popular radio programs in the country now. I'm sure when he took it, he didn't realize he'd have it for be on there for five weeks. But uh, I think it was great for him that he did that. I, I would think it would kind of be the talk of the town that he's taking over this radio program. And my gosh, did you hear Orson on Jack's show? I mean, he really did a good job. Blah blah blah. I, I would think would be the kind of the, the water cooler talk uh, across the country. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. I was curious that the exact same question. 
it was definitely talked about <clears throat> in the trades and some, you know, found a couple like sort of fan ish mm -hmm. magazines. Um, people seem generally happy. It wasn't like a giant fervor discussion, but right. people seemed happy with how Wells was doing. His career definitely was more on the wane, right? I mean, he had just had Magnificent Ambersons not too long before, sort of edited in, in many people's mind, tarnished and come back from Brazil. And that film, you know, got uh, pretty much totally in a vault and never shown. Exactly, yeah. right. And it never got released. So, you know, that was all sort of the things we had dealt with in the first two Jack episodes is them sort of playing off of all of this, you know, this this sort of beaten down uh, version of Wells where he's sort of like a spendthrift and uh, lost touch and all this stuff. We right. don't see that much as much here. So I actually think it's a really nice sud. If we think of it like this as an arc, we see the first two episodes sort of like really grappling with that. Like, okay, people's ideas of Wells have changed. And mm -hmm. then they sort of just mark it and then they morph it, you know, over the next couple uh, episodes to be away from the really bad parts about it and just kind of be this eccentric guy who's demanding and directing, but otherwise isn't doing this sort of things that Wells would have been negatively associated with. Right. In terms of bad ideas well, and spending a ton of money. That I was going to mention about this is, is, uh, the last two episodes, especially the the, <clears throat> the second one, had a lot of guest folks on it. Had a lot of actors on there that aren't <clears throat> normally on there who were assistants and things that were to to uh, play off of of Orson and his controlling it, issues and things. Uh, certainly, the last one had Hans Conried on there as one of the players, and that's always great. But this one scales that way down and i think all we have left is his uh secretary that's on here um and other than that it's, it's the regular cast which i love because it gives it a chance this this one like we said it gives the regular cast a lot more to do and it's a lot of fun that they that they do that it's just interesting right. that, they, that they scale scale that back i don't know if they thought well maybe we need all these extra players and they said well we really don't we orson plays well enough with our team that we can just use our own team and it'll work fine um, it's anyway. funny it's it's funny to witness how willing he is to go with the flow at this point too yeah because exactly. as vincent said it's just after amberson's and after south america he's finally having to take acting work paid acting work in order to make a camera number if i'm correct on this but i think conceivably he was trying to raise money so that he could like go in and try to finish it's all true um which would be the sort of the beginning of a trend with wells that would go up to the end of his life and he's and he's and this is before he gets the chance to do the stranger so that he can show that he doesn't glow in the dark and um i i i find it interesting that he's willing to go with the flow because i think even he understands that this is another angle for me if i really need to find a way to make a consistent income right. to get the things done that i want to get done if i've got a go into self-deprecation what better way than to learn from the, the masters of self-deprecation as it were with the with the jack benny program well it's so interesting in that he's friends with jack and so you're going okay is he coming in here at a cut rate and just and just going off of the fact that wow i'm going to be a national radio show and so i don't need to get paid much or is it going because jack is ultra generous we we all know that and so is he paying him Five thousand, seven thousand. I don't know. What's he paying him per episode? I think uh, that would be really interesting information to find out to see exactly what he got paid for this whole thing. Because 
it could be a ridiculously high amount of money so that you could do other projects and things like you're saying, Zach, or it could be a ridiculously low amount and he's doing it as a favor to Jack and just thought he'd do one week and then they kept on needing him and he kept on going, oh, okay, I guess I'll come back and do another and I'll do another. And you know, I can't do. imagine he's making anything above 50 grand for all the episodes combined. Um, I mean, where, the, where he knew we were, well, 10,000 episode would be a lot though. I mean, it's right. It would, but, um, but he's making a hundred grand on Jane Eyre alone. Right. Um, along with supposed associate producer credit that doesn't come to fruition because, but do these that, five episodes add up to half a Jane Eyre? I don't know. It's uh... I, I, I doubt it, but you know, I don't know. You know, it's, it's so, it's so weird piecing Jack and Orson together because it's not a big occurrence in either performer's lives. And yet it's such a strange moment where two, uh, where two very big popular icons of either one era or another retroactively right. are in the same spot, more or less. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, it's almost like you, you, you crave a Jack Benny diary. Right. Uh, where, where he talked about why this happened or what was going on with this. Cause you're not going to get the, the answer out of Orson. And frankly, the, the majority of questions that were asked of Orson had very little to do with his radio program, except for the mythology of the thirties and not really about, the end of some of the innovation in the forties, as well as obviously like Isaac Woodard jr. That's not being asked by Peter Bogdanovich. Like, you know, all he cares about is what got him to Hollywood and then talking about the film career, you know? Right. So right. it's almost yeah. like we need a time machine to go back with a radio geek, go ask these questions. questions. Yes. Yes. And then see what, what myth does Orson spin yeah. <laughs> as a result of it? You know, Kathy, you were going to say something. I think. Well, one thing I'd just like to add is um, how interesting on the part of one thing that intrigues me about Jack Benny is how he's able to make good friends across the political spectrum. Yes. It's the same way with a harmonica player, Larry Adler, who was extremely liberal. And, and Larry Adler's autobiography said that he just loved touring with Jack in that time overseas for the, um, uh, um, the, um, USO. Um, but that when Larry got back to Los Angeles, he couldn't stand Jack's conservative friends, that uh, uh, that Jack's Hollywood actor friends were highly conservative and Larry felt uncomfortable, but he could have a wonderful time with Jack. And I'm guessing that Orson Welles, you know, was able to feel the same same way. Well, Orson could hold his room. And Jack was fairly apolitical and wasn't you know, so he could get along with kind of anybody and everybody, because I think that's what Jack wanted to do. He didn't like having arguments. I mean, certainly uh, we were talking about how he uh, we uh, just recently the, the an interview with John Lennon and and Jack Benny talking to each other uh, came came to light. And uh, and just the fact that he treated Lennon with respect and just kind of wanted to hear his viewpoint on things and, and uh, asked him. Question. I, I was delighted with that whole piece and we'll present that to you guys sometime in the future. But I think we'll let us go because we're going to go ahead and do another one of these and we can talk more then. So thanks, everybody. And enjoy Orson Welles on the Jack Benny Show. We'll see you next time. The Grape Nuts Flakes program starring Orson Welles, who is pinch hitting for Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs>
Tonight, I'm the original glad man, friends, for aren't we all glad to get news of a thrifty, swifty, appetizing breakfast dish for these up and atom early mornings? Then wait till we all tell you all about Grape Nuts Flakes, the crisp and toasty brown breakfast cereal that's always ready for breakfast before you are. And ready-to-eat Grape Nuts Flakes are as temptingly good to eat as they are easy to serve. It's your old friend of the famous Grape Nuts flavor, you know, turned out in delectable, crisp, and crunchy flake form. With that same malty-rich, sweet-as-a-nut goodness, a flavor that makes Grape Nuts Flakes America's fastest-growing breakfast cereal. And think of this, too, homemakers. Every time you buy a big 12-ounce economy package of Grape Nuts Flakes, you're saving on ration stamps because you don't need them, not for thrifty, plentiful Grape Nuts Flakes. from there, played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before we start the program, let us reenact for you a little scene which took place a short while ago in a drugstore near the NBC building here in Hollywood. The time exactly 15 minutes before this broadcast. Take it away, drugstore! One tuna fish on whole weight. One tuna fish coming up. Gosh, it's crowded in here. Say, Don, do you think I have time for a sandwich before the show? Why, yes, Mary, if you hurry. I think I'll have a dish of tutti-frutti ice cream myself. Watch it, Don. <laughs> if you put on one more chin, you can throw away your vest. <laughs> no kidding. Now, Mary, will you stop ribbing me about my weight? I'm not so heavy. Go on. Every time you step into an empty elevator, the operator says, that's all, please, and up you go. <laughs> Oh, Gilroy. What'll it be, Mary? Uh, just a sandwich. I'll have a hamburger. A hamburger? Yes, ma'am. Oh, Radcliffe. Yes, Gilroy. Hitch old Dobbin to a bun. <laughs> you want something else, Mary? No, that'll be all. Uh, would you mind taking my order, bud? Uh, gladly. What do you have, wobble tummy? <laughs> mm? Well, I'll have a dish of ice cream, please. Make it uh, tutti-frutti. Uh, you can have tutti, but there's no more fruity for the duration. <laughs> How's that, Radcliffe? Gilroy, you're really bumping your gums now. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you two jerks give up sodas and write for radio? We do. We just sold a lot of gags to old Red Skelton. Red Skelton? No, old Red Skelton, his father. <laughs> Well, that's my fault for talking to you. Oh, hello, Phil. Hiya, Mary. Hello, Donzo. Well, Phil, is your orchestra all rehearsed for the program? Who rehearses? If I ever told my boys they was playing something wrong, they'd say, how do you know? Then I'd be stuck. <laughs> Take it easy. Relax. That's my motto. Well, I hope Orson doesn't find out you didn't rehearse. Oh, wealthy? Why, him and me as pals, we gave a lecture together at UCLA just last night. You and Orson gave a talk at the university? Oh, Orson did all the talking. I just sat there and let them professors feel my head once in a while. <laughs> what? No, so, you should have been there. I started to pull a couple of gags and Orson wrapped me on the bean with his pointer. Get a load of this lump up there. 
Will it be Twitch or Promo Seltzer? No, thanks. I had one across the street. I just came in here to burp. <laughs> Ain't that a Lulu? Oh, you and your Lulus. Say, Gil, is this man annoying you? No, Radcliffe. Put down that cupcake. <laughs> oh, that Radcliffe's really a demon. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Miss Livingston. Say, how's the hamburger you're eating? All it needs is a jockey. <laughs> Mr. Harris, where'd you get that big lump on your head? From Orson Welles, that's who. Orson Welles. <laughs> you want something to eat, Dennis? You better order. Now, what do you want? I think I'll have the special sandwich. Peanut brittle on whole wheat. <laughs> you mean peanut butter. No, look, it says right here, peanut brittle. That's a misprint, kid. I'll bring you a peanut butter sandwich. Nothing doing. It says peanut brittle here, and that's what I want. <laughs> now, listen. I know my rights. <laughs> Dennis. If I wasn't a lady, I'd knock him right off that stool. Now behave yourself. Hey, kids, get a load of who's coming in. It's Miss Harrington, Orson's secretary. Hello, Miss Harrington. Hello, young man. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, Butch. <laughs> hmm. By the way, Miss Harrington, how's Mr. Wells feeling today? Oh, he's in a splendid mood. He found his yo-yo under the dresser. <laughs> <laughs> What's your order, ma'am? I want this place tidied up and this counter cleared. Mr. Wells is about to honor this hash house with his presence. Yes, ma'am. And incidentally, young man, when did you put on that shirt you're wearing? In 1937, when I left Stratford, Connecticut. Well, change it immediately. Yes, ma'am. And as for your gruesome friend with the wide part in his hair... <laughs> That's gotta be me. Would you mind lying under the counter until Mr. Wells leaves? Gladly. My feet is killing me. <laughs> Attention. Attention, everybody. Mr. Wells is approaching. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Orson Wells. Well, well, Mary, you look lovely today. Thanks, Orson. I stopped by your house to give you a lift to the studio, but the butler said you'd already gone. The butler? Oh, did Papa have that tailcoat on again? <laughs> well, at any rate, I'm sorry I missed you. There doesn't seem to be a vacant stool here. Uh, take mine and I'll sit on your lap, baby face. <laughs> That's sweet of you, Mary. Uh, don't you think it's a little early in the day for romance? Well... Take it when you can get it. That's my motto. <laughs> Dennis, please. Oh, boy, boy. Yes, Mr. Wells? I'll have a cup of cold consomme madrilene, breast of guinea hen under glass, and a bottle of Chateau Lafitte 1928. Hey, where do you think you are? The Brown Derby? Get back under that counter. <laughs> yes, Mr. Wells. <laughs> Whoop! Bop my head. <laughs> Mr. Wells, Mr. Wells, I don't think you'll have time to eat. We're due on the air in a few minutes. Oh, very well. By the way, did you pick up the sketch we're doing on the program tonight for Mr. Benny's writers? Here it is, Mr. Wells. Would you mind okaying it? Not at all. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> now, that's awful. Miss Harrington, take this out in the alley and burn it immediately. Yes, Mr. Wells. Burn the script? But, Orson, what are we going to do for a play tonight? I shall write one myself. Hey, Mr. Wells, if you're looking for a comedy sketch, my partner and I wrote one that's terrific. Yeah, it's dynamite. Get back under that counter. 
Yes, Mr. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for that long enough. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> Sight gag, ladies and gentlemen. Well, how about it, Mr. Wells? You want to buy our play? Yes, deliver it to me at NBC as quickly as possible. Thanks, Mr. Wells. Uh, come on, everybody, follow me. Last one in the studio is a rotten egg. <laughs> so nice to come home to, it says here, played by Phil Harris and his orchestra. Phil, you can stop waving your baton now. The number's over. Oh, yeah, thanks. Don't mention it. You see, old boy, uh, I didn't get a chance to rehearse that selection, so consequently, I didn't realize it had reached its termination, uh, if you get what I mean. Uh, that is due to your lackadaisical inadvertence. The conclusion of that number found you in a state of oblivious lethargy. You get what I mean? No, but my lump is throbbing. <laughs> So I notice it's fairly dancing. Uh, by the way, Mary, I've been meaning to ask you, how's Jack coming along? Is he over his cold? If he was over his cold, you wouldn't be here, brother. <laughs> Dennis? Yes, Jack is much better, Orson. He's resting at the Arizona Biltmore in Phoenix. The Arizona Biltmore? Isn't that rather expensive for Jack? Expense means nothing to him. He was delirious when he checked in. That must be the reason. You know, fellas, I got a postcard from Mr. Benny this morning. He asked me to send his golf bag right away. His golf bag? Say, the old boy must be getting better if he wants to play a little golf. What do you mean, golf? If I know Benny, he landed a job picking grapefruit. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Mary. Let's all be fair to Jack. He doesn't think of work all the time. No, of course not. Jack can relax and enjoy vacation like anybody else. Oh, yeah? He took me to Catalina on the boat one time and played his fiddle all the way over. Well, that doesn't mean he was playing for money. Don't tell me. I was passing the hat. <laughs> 
Just the same, I'm sure Jack is getting a good rest in Phoenix. Incidentally, that gives me a splendid idea. I think I'll call Jack and say hello to him. Right now? Of course, right now, Miss Harrington. Get me Mr. Benny at the Arizona Biltmore in Phoenix. Yes, Mr. Wells. Imagine talking to Phoenix, Arizona just like that. Ain't a phone a wonderful thing? It sure is. Say, Mr. Harris, who invented the telephone? Well, Alexander Graham invented the bell. The rest, I don't know nothing about. <laughs> Mr. Harris, the telephone in its entirety was invented by Alexander Graham Bell, which I can pronounce. Come, come, Miss Harrington. What's the delay on that call? Well, I have the Arizona Biltmore, but they can't seem to locate Mr. Benny. Let me have that phone, please. Hello? Hello, operator? I'd like to talk to Jack Benny. What? He's not registered. He's not a guest there. Uh, have a look out in the lobby. Maybe he's a bellboy. <laughs> bellboy? With his flat feet, he could be the house dick. <laughs> Bill, please. Now, operator, I'd like to talk to Mr. Benny. Oh, his temperature went down. He checked out. Uh, very well, I'll call him there. Goodbye. That's strange. What's the matter? Did Jack leave the Arizona Biltmore? Yes, it seems he's now stopping at the Jasmine Blossom Auto Court. <laughs> the Jasmine Blossom? Hey, I just thought of something. Jasmine Blossom. That's JB, the same initials as Mr. Benny. That's right, Dennis, and I'm sure Jack will come home with some lovely monogram towels. <laughs> Miss Harrington, remind me to call Mr. Benny first thing tomorrow morning at the Jasmine Blossom Auto Court. Yes, Mr. Wells. Oh, excuse me. Come in. Well, it's those two merry madcaps from the soda fountain. Hello, fellows. Hello, Mr. Wells. Here's that comedy sketch we wrote for you. There's a little mayonnaise on it, but it's very jolly. <laughs> Thank you, fellows. By the way, would you like to stay and hear your little gem? I don't know. Should we stay, Gil? We can't stay. That fat lady is waiting for her cheeseburger. Oh, yes. Let's go. Wait till I open the door. <laughs> well... Let's see what they've written here. So far, nothing but mayonnaise. A little crude, but it'll get by. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for our feature attraction this evening, we are going to present a mystery melodrama entitled Death at Midnight or the... <laughs> Murder Case. <laughs> now, in this drama, I will play the role of Inspector Wells of police headquarters. <laughs> Bill, you'll be my assistant, Sergeant Harris, and Dennis, you will be my other assistant, Sergeant Day. It is your duty to help me solve a horrible crime. Okay. But I didn't do it, I tell you. I didn't do it! You're a policeman. Of course you didn't do it. <laughs> Don't be too sure. And Mary. It's always a guy you never suspect, silly. <laughs> Dennis, please. Now, Mary. Yes, Orson. In our sketch, you play the part of the mysterious lady in black. Six of your husbands have strangely disappeared, and you've just married your seventh. I'm a busy little girl, aren't I? <laughs> Decidedly. Well, that takes care of the casting for our play. Oh, I beg your pardon, Orson, but haven't you overlooked me? Don, overlooking you is like losing a bass drum in a phone booth. <laughs> However, you should be the butler. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this play will go on immediately after... I'll take it. Hello? Hello, Mr. Wells. This is Rochester. Hello, Rochester. What do you want? Mr. Wells, up to now, working for you has been a pleasure, but trouble has reared its ugly head. Trouble? <laughs> it's that Chinese cook of yours. We just don't speak the same language. Well, naturally. <laughs> naturally. What's the difficulty between you and Chong? You know those pork chops I got at the market yesterday? 
The ones I had to use commando tactics to obtain? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that cook of yours wants to cut him up into little pieces for chop suey. That's vandalism. Now, calm down, Rochester. Any man that would treat a pork chop like that would pull the chair out from under Whistler's mother. <laughs> Rochester. Rochester, don't get so excited. Good heavens, the way you... T- the way you talk, you think those chops were radium. I can get radium tomorrow. Let's see you get some pork chops. <laughs> now, Rochester, there's no reason... There's no reason why you and Chong can't be good friends. Put Chong on the phone. Okay, here he is. Hello, Chong. Hello, Ma, Mr. Wells. Now, Chong, I want you and Rochester to get along with each other. What's all this quarreling about? So he told me. <laughs> Anything else? You're absolutely right. <laughs> now, Chong, here's what you do. Cook the chop suey for us and give Rochester a couple of pork chops for himself. Okay, Mr. Wells. I'm very happy. Now put Rochester back on the phone. Rochester? Yes, Mr. Wells? Everything is all settled. Chong's giving you two pork chops, and you can cook them any way you want to. Cook them? I bought myself a gold frame. I'm going to hang them in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so long, Mr. Wells. Goodbye, Rochester. <laughs> Well, I guess that's straightened out. Sing, Dennis.
be wrong and that was Dennis Day singing and Dennis I don't have to tell you that was very good I'll say you don't I heard it uh. <laughs> Dennis you shouldn't pat yourself on the back like that it's quite hammy you should talk brother <laughs> we've got something there and now ladies and gentlemen go away Dennis and now ladies and gentlemen <laughs> we will present our thrilling baffling spine tingling mystery melodrama death at midnight as the scene opens, we find Inspector Wells in his office at police headquarters. Curtain, music! Is that the phone, Inspector? No, it's a preview for For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> Hello, police headquarters. Inspector Wells speaking. Help, help. Come over at once. I'm going to be murdered. Get away from that phone, you little double-crosser. I'll let you have it. Help, help. <laughs> what was that, Inspector? Oh, one of those gin-rummy arguments. <laughs> and uh, before I forget it, Harris, you're supposed to be a policeman. What's the idea of coming to work in those loud sport clothes? My girlfriend thinks I'm a bookmaker. That's no excuse. Now, here, here's your badge, your uniform, your club. Okay, where's my flat feet? On the opposite end of your flat head. Oh, you <laughs> Oh, Inspector. What is it, Sergeant Day? Somebody has been passing phony dollar bills all over town, and I've got one of them. A dollar bill, eh? And how do you know it's phony? Washington is wearing Lincoln's beard. Hmm. Let me see that. You're right. And he's wearing Lincoln's hat, too. Hey, were those two guys roommates? Of course not. Hmm. Washington wearing Lincoln's beard. This is the worst job of counterfeiting I ever saw. You think that's something? Turn the bill over. Good heavens. Hedda Hopper is sitting on the eagle. <laughs> nice work, Day. We've got to report this to Washington. I thought he was dead. Washington, D.C. <laughs> Hello? Hello, Inspector Wells speaking. Hello, Specky. This is Mrs. Lillian Gahagan Crumdike speaking. You know, the lady in black. Why did you call me up, you naughty girl? Have you bumped off another husband? I didn't have anything to do with it. I went to the library just now, and he was slumped over the radio with the Fred Allen program going full blast. Well, was your husband dead? He must have been. He didn't turn it off. <laughs> so long, Specky. Uh, hold everything, Mrs. Crumdike. I'll be right over. Sergeant Harris, Sergeant Day. Yes, yes Inspector. Come on, boys. We're going over to investigate a murder. And I have a hunch this crime was committed by... By... By who? I can't make this out. There's mayonnaise on it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, fellows! Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Hedy Lamar locked in her closet. Take it easy, boys. <laughs> that is all. Oh, 
This is the house right here. Harris, stay. Break down that door. Yes, sir. Gentlemen, did you ring? Uh, no, we didn't. We're the police. Who are you? I'm Wobble Tummy, the butler. The butler, eh? Now tell me, what do you know about this crime? I don't know anything, sir. When the murder took place, I was down at the grocery store buying a package of toasty brown sweeters and a grape nuts flakes. Grape nuts flakes, eh? Make a nut, uh, a note of that, Harris. Yes, sir. Now come clean, you. You're talking to the law. What do you know about Grape Nuts Flakes? I know they're America's fastest-growing flake cereal, and they're famous for their malty-rich flavor, and the Grape Nuts Flakes come in a 12-ounce economy-sized package. Harris, this man is concealing something. Keep an eye on him. Gotcha. <laughs> now I think I'll grill Mrs. Crumdike. I have a hunch she killed her husband. You know that saying, Chauchet la femme, don't you? No, I don't. Well, you ought to learn it. It's all the rage now. <laughs> well, the blue coats are here. Hi, it's Becky. Hello, Mrs. Crumdike. Where's the body? Right here, and I'm wearing a new dress. <laughs> I mean your husband's body. Oh, that old thing. Hmm. It's a strange coincidence, Mrs. Crumdike, but all of your husbands have met untimely deaths. Take your first husband, the big game hunter. What about him? You went on a hunting trip to Canada with him, and he's the first thing you shot. Well, he looked like a moose. <laughs> That's no excuse. Now, I want a confession, Mrs. Crumdike, and I want it now. Start talking! Well... It's no use. You murdered your husband, and you might as well admit it. Well, here we go again. Lies! Lies! Nothing but lies. You hated your husband, and you couldn't stand him any longer. Now, tell me, how did you kill him? Well... I don't believe it! <laughs> I'm arresting you, Mrs. Crumdike. Arresting you for the murder of your husband. Tell me, what's his first name? Well... Otto J. Crumdike. Slap the bracelets on her, Harris, and let's go. Oh, Inspector, Mrs. Crumdike is innocent. Innocent? Yes, someone just threw a note in the window, and it solves the whole case. Give me that note. Where is it? I ate it. It was covered with mayonnaise. Oh. <laughs> Come on, Harris. Let's get over to Hedy Lamar's house. She may still be trapped. <laughs> sit down to a big, tempting bowl full of appetizing, baldy-rich grape nuts flakes. Aren't you pleased with yourself? Well, you should be. Because it's smart to go for a breakfast dish like that. One chuck full of swell flavor, plus wonderful all-around nourishment. And you're in good company, too, for your neighbors all over the country are also calling for grape nuts flakes. The farmer, the salesman, the welder, the kind of folks who get things done. They start with a nourishing breakfast, and Grape Nuts Flakes are just that. For Grape Nuts Flakes are a whole grain cereal, crammed full of whole grain food values, including iron, niacin, and vitamin B1 for appetite, nerves, and tip-top energy. Vigor, vitality, vitamins. That's V-eating for you with delicious, toasty brown Grape Nuts Flakes. <laughs>
next Sunday night, ladies and gentlemen. This is your obedient servant, Orson Welles. And Mary, I want to compliment you on your performance tonight in the role of Mrs. Crumdike. I was pretty crummy, huh? Well... Good night, folks. Good night, doll. This program was written by Radcliffe Marlowe and Gilroy Beloyne with mayonnaise by Orson Welles. One, two, three, and go. That's hot grape nut sweet meal for you. The grand hot cereal you cook in quick step time. Just three minutes by the clock. It's the hot cereal member of the famous Grape Nuts family. Try it. Let the whole family in on that grand roasted wheat goodness, that heartwarming, full-bodied texture. And hot Grape Nuts wheat meal brings you whole grain nourishment, too. Remember, that's hot Grape Nuts wheat meal. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Well, it's a little again... This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1952-1953 season. This episode uh, is a, has for the skit the um, what is it? The Mississippi Gambler, and it was a movie with Tyrone Power that came out in 1953, and it's awfully fun when Jack. Uh, Spoofs one of the current movies, and he's doing more of that this season, I think, than he did uh, the last few seasons, and so I'm kind of liking that. Uh, the other thing that, of course, gets mentioned again today is um, the Cimarron rolls from last week. They started up that running gag. Uh, I thought I'd share a little story about myself and, and a donut uh, fiasco. Out here in the West Coast, uh, our biggest selling donut is the Maple Bar, and the Maple Bar is just a, I'll have a picture of it that I'm going to include on this podcast, but it's basically a, um, I don't know, what, what is it, three inches wide by five inches long with maple um, topping over it, and it's delicious, and, and uh, whenever we, um, you get donuts for any occasion, folks usually pick up about half of the donuts if you're getting a uh, a dozen, of course, about six of them, then will be maple bars, and then there'll be an assortment of other donuts, chocolate and glazed and so forth. Um, but maple bars are just so popular here that you want to get about half your donuts that are those. Well, when we were back east, I asked, I went to a Dunkin' Donuts and asked for a maple bar. They had no idea what, was, what I was talking about. I'm there with my daughter and my son trying to explain what a maple bar is to this person that works in Dunkin' Donuts. And we went to a couple Dunkin' Donuts, and they didn't have them in any of them. Well, you couldn't get a maple bar over there, as far as I can tell. And it just seems strange that, that, that that's the fact, because, of course, Vermont has uh, produces the most maple syrup and things uh, in the country, and you would think that the East Coast would have maple bars. But uh, anyway, the part I was in, I can't remember if it was Boston or Philadelphia, at the time, or both maybe, but they had no idea what a maple bar was, and, and it just was so strange going to a place that something that's so common out here wasn't even heard of out there. Uh, 
but I think, boy, if someone wants to make a great deal of money and make their donut shops do so much better, uh, I would introduce maple bars over there. I think they would be very popular. Uh, anyway, enjoy tonight's episode of the Jack Benny Show. I'll have one more donut story to share with you that's even, that's even, this one's not risky at all, but the next one is a little risky, but, but anyway, uh, enjoy this episode and we will see you again next time. The Jack Benny Program. Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, last Sunday on his television show, Jack Benny acted both roles in that famous classic, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. That's right. Stevenson took a beating. (laughs) Wait a minute. And here's the star of our show, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and... Don. Don. 33-dimensional. Don, I want to ask you something about that introduction. Did you write that joke yourself? Well, I don't want to take all the credit. My wife helped me write that one. Oh, your wife. Your wife helped you, eh? Don, she's an actress, isn't she? Jack, you know very well that my wife is an actress. You've had her on your program many times. In fact, she was on just last week. That's right. Don, isn't it a shame that both of you are going to be out of work at the same time? (laughs) I'm sorry you have no children. I'd enjoy firing them, too. Now, wait a minute, Jack. You can't fire me after all the years I've been with you. I started as your announcer in 1934, and during all these 19 years, I've given you loyalty and devotion. Some loyalty and devotion. Every time I cut your salary, you tell everybody. (laughs) Anyway, Don... If you ever cut my salary, my mother would slap your silly face. (laughs) Dennis. Dennis, in the first place, I wasn't talking to you. And in the second place, it's about time you showed up. How come you missed rehearsal today? I had a tooth pulled. Oh. Oh, well, then I'm sorry. Was the tooth giving you a lot of pain, Dennis? No. No. Did, uh, did it have a cavity? No. Then why in the world did you have your tooth pulled? Because the dentist owed me $10, and that was the only way I could collect <laughs> Look, kid, you let the dentist pull your tooth because he owed you $10? Yeah, I wish he owed me 11 Then I could have had Novocaine. <laughs> well, I don't want to go into that anymore. I don't care whether Remley laughs or not. I don't want to go into that. Now, Dennis, look it. I don't mind so much your missing rehearsal. But the least you could have done is let me know. Well, I did. I called your house yesterday, and I told Rochester I couldn't be there. Oh, you did, eh? Well, I'm going to call Rochester and find out. So 
Why, Mabel, what is it, Gertrude? Mr. Penny's line is flashing. Yeah, I wonder what the bat in the pocketful wants now. <laughs> I'll plug in and find out. Hello? Yes, Mr. Benny. Very well, I'll see if I can get him for you. He wants I should ring his house and get him Rochester. Gee, Gertrude, you sound awfully formal when you were speaking to Jack. Uh, did you two have a fight? No. Uh, in fact, just the other night, he took me to a preview. We saw Rita Hayworth in Salome. It was an exciting picture, especially when Rita did the dance of the seven veils. Gosh, did she take off all seven? No, she stopped when she took off number six. But Jack will never know. <laughs> Why not? He fainted at number five. <laughs> Are you kidding? Jack really fainted? Yeah. He closed those baby blue eyes and slid right off the seat. <laughs> well, what do you know? Uh, look, you've been seeing a lot of him lately, haven't you? Yeah. I've been seeing Jack so often I had to turn down a date with Dennis Day last week. Well, look who's talking. Jeannie with the light brown teeth. <laughs> Gertrude, Gertrude, what? Are you sure there's no answer? Well, keep trying the number. Goodbye. What's the matter, Jack? Rochester isn't home, but I'm going to call him again. And Dennis, for your sake, I hope you were telling me the truth. Now it's time for your song, so let's have it. Yes, sir. Oh, hold it, kid. Come in. Uh, telegram for Jack Benny. <laughs> I'm Jack Benny. Well, here you are. I'll be darned, it's from Fred Allen. Fred Allen? What does he say? Dear Jack, I have just been informed that I am to appear on your television show. That's what I get for telling my agent to get me anything. <laughs> hmm. Now, come on, Dennis, let's get on with it. Boy, what are you hanging around here for? Well, sir, I don't mean to appear impudent or presumptuous, but when someone delivers a telegram, it is customary for the recipient to show his appreciation with a gratuity. <laughs> okay, okay. Here. Oh, boy, a Canadian dime. Now I can summer at Lake Louise. <laughs> Dennis, let's have your song. Things you haven't got could 
singing for ten. Very good, Dennis. It was excellent. And now, kids, we have a very important play to do tonight. Hey, where's Bob Crosby? Well, here I am. Bob, I just happened to think of something. You missed rehearsal, too. What's your excuse? Well, I had to go down to buy a little gift for Sammy's new baby. Sammy, the drummer's wife, had a baby? Mm -hmm. Gee, I didn't know that. Hey, remind me to send something, too. Eh? Okay. No, it's wonderful the way the presents have been rolling in. All the musicians sent gifts. Gosh, no Bagby sent a little blanket. Wayne Songer sent a cute little dress. Rembley sent a sweater that he knitted. And Kimmick sent the nicest... Hold it, hold it a second, Bob. Hold it. You said Remley sent a sweater he knitted? Yeah. I didn't know Remley could knit. Jack, when you got the shakes like Frankie has, you can do wonders with knitting needles. I, I, I guess so. After six martinis, he's an Argyle man. That <laughs> figures. Now, kids, it's getting late, and I think we ought to start on the sketch we're going to do. Huh? Uh, what about the sketch, Mr. Benny? Well, it's based on that wonderful Universal International picture, Mississippi Gambler, starring Tyrone Power. I, of course, will play Tyrone Power's part. Wait a minute, Jack. Do you think you're the type? Well... He certainly is. He's young, handsome, and romantic, just like Tyrone Power. Oh, thanks, Dennis. You're loyal and devoted. I'm nuts, too. <laughs> now, cut that out! <laughs> now, Don, set the scene. Oh, hold it a minute, hold it. Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny, this is Rochester. Rochester, I called you before and you were out. I had to go down to the market to do some shopping for the house. Oh, what'd you get? I got a half pound of hamburger, a can of peas, a can of beans, and a bale of alfalfa. <laughs> Why in the world would you buy a bale of alfalfa? The price of milk went up two cents and I know what you're gonna do about that. <laughs> I am not. They don't let they don't let you keep them in Beverly Hills. Pasadena, maybe, but not... <laughs> now, 
Now, Rochester, the reason I called is because Dennis Day said he phoned yesterday and told you he'd have to miss rehearsal. Oh, yes, boss. I forgot to tell you. Oh, oh, you did, eh? Well, were there any calls today? Yes, sir. I have them right here. Let's see. The income tax department called. Income tax? What, <laughs> what do they want? What do they want? Oh, it didn't concern you, boss. It was about the income I reported. Well, what was wrong with it? Nothing. They just called to offer their sympathy. <laughs> Well, that's your problem. Were there any other calls? Oh, yes. Miss Barbara Stanwyck called. She's giving a big party tomorrow night, and she wants you to be there. Oh, good, good. Black tie or white tie? White coat. You'll be parking cars. <laughs> oh, well, Rochester, put some new batteries in my flashlight. <laughs> Goodbye, Rochester. Goodbye. Don, now, Don, you can set the scene for our sketch. Okay. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Playhouse presents its version of Mississippi Gambler. Curtain. Music. In the middle of the 19th century, the main artery of commerce and transportation between the North and the South was the Mississippi. Riverboats used to paddle their way up and down in a never-ending stream. Aboard these ships was cargo and passengers, and a special breed of these passengers was the Mississippi Gambler. My name is Tyrone Benny. I'm a Mississippi Gambler. I've been going up and down this river all my life. The first 20 years were tough. Then I got on a boat. <laughs> I don't remember much of my father, but my mother was a kindly woman. And she always tried to teach me right from wrong. I remember when I was two years old, she sat me on her lap and said, Look, son, you're very young, but try to remember this. Never draw to an inside straight. <laughs> Ours was a wonderful relationship. When I was 18, Mother and I parted. I went to New Orleans, and she went to Tehachapi. <laughs> One day, my best friend, Robert Stonewall Crosby, and I found ourselves in St. Paul and we boarded a riverboat back to New Orleans. Do you think we'll make any money this trip, Tyrone? Sure, there are plenty of suckers aboard. But, Bob, I don't know whether you're ready to be a professional gambler yet. Well, why not? Well, you don't keep a good poker face. Well, what makes you say that? Because I've watched you. When you fill a full house, you're supposed to sit there with a vacant expression. Not jump up on your chair and sing two choruses of Oh, Happy Day. <laughs> Wait a minute. Here comes a couple of guys that look right for picking. Let me do the talking. Would you gentlemen care to while away the time in a friendly game of cards? Well, I don't mind if I do. 
I got a thousand dollars I can spare. And I got a Canadian dime. <laughs> you got your tip. Get out of here. Now, come on. We'll play some three-handed poker. Well, suits me. Here's the table. I'll deal. Hmm. I'll open for $50. I'll see that and raise it a hundred. I'll see your raise and raise it another hundred. That's too much for me. I'm out. Well, I'll call. Give me two cards. I'll take one. I'll bet a hundred dollars. I'll raise two hundred. Well, I'll just call. What do you got? Four aces. Beats me. I got three aces. That's why I dropped out. I only had two. <laughs> Say, wait a minute, stranger. You dealt those nine aces, and I'll think you're cheating. No man can say that to me, sir. Do you know what it means when someone slaps your face with his glove? It means a challenge to a duel. That's right, so take that. I accept your challenge. <laughs> However, duels were small incidents on the river, and our boat pushed southwards. Our ride took us down past Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, and then Missouri. He thought it was a treat to 
beat my feet on the Mississippi mud. <laughs> Shortly after this incident, that I met her. I remember when we were first introduced, she said, I am awfully glad to meet you, monsieur. And I hope you and I can become good friends. Very good friends. Her name was Yvette. And she had come aboard that morning at Albuquerque. <laughs> now, I know that Albuquerque is far from the Mississippi. But for her, somehow the boat made it. <laughs> I told her that I, too, hoped we would become good friends. And she said... You are very kind, monsieur. She was a plain gal. <laughs> Slim, frail, and immature. <laughs> this description was written before the part was cast. <laughs> we fell in love. But because her brother hated gamblers, we had to meet each other secretly. One morning after we landed at New Orleans, she was supposed to meet me at the place where I lived, the Old Man River Hotel. It was called the Old Man River Hotel because when you stayed there, you were tired of living and feared of dying. <laughs> have some breakfast and call room service. Soon the waiter was knocking at my door. Come in. I had that you call for room service. <laughs> yes, I want some breakfast. Orange juice, coffee, and uh, let's see, what can I have with the coffee? Well, we have toast, English muffins, donuts, and Cimarron rolls. <laughs> what? Cimarron rolls. Look, waiter. Bring me some orange juice, coffee, and a Cimarron roll. Okay, and you're lucky. Yesterday, I couldn't have brought you any Cimarron rolls. Why not? We were out of cinnamon. All right, just go get it. He brought me my breakfast, and I finished it. And then Yvette arrived. She looked so beautiful standing there in her new knitted dress. I could tell it was newly knitted because a drunken guitar player was still working on it. Now, darling, you're here, you're here. Oh, yes, Jerome. I'm sorry to be late, but I Don't had... talk. Just come into my arms. Now, let me kiss you. Oh, oh, your kiss. It is so wonderful. It tastes of Cimarron. Cimarron? That's French for cinnamon. Oh, then I must apologize to the waiter. Who can that be? Oh, it must be my brother. He followed me here. Hey, wait a minute. Ah, hey, monsieur, at last I have found you. You pig, you dog, you snake. I break you in two. Oh, then is my brother. Listen to me. Eh? Oh, j'aime cet homme. Il est moi. Et quoi qu'il est un joueur comme du fleuve, et nous sommes des aristocraties, je lui marierai sans égard pour qu'elle te dise. What did she say? 
I do not know, but dig that crazy language. <laughs> now look. Monsieur, my sister will not marry your gambler. I challenge you to a duel. What? I slap your face with my glove. You're supposed to take your hand out of it first. <laughs> but if you want a duel, draw your sword. On guard. So young, so inexperienced. But as the duel progressed, the minutes wore on and on till we had fought an hour. Still we fought on with unabated fury, and another hour passed. And another hour. Then suddenly it was over. He didn't hurt me, and I didn't harm him. But my two sound men killed each other. <laughs> that is my story. The Adventures of a Mississippi Gambler. <laughs> Next week to the Jack Benny Show, Don Wilson speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television presents Transcribe, the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show. For your enjoyment, here is the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and our special guests, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Ordinarily, Phil is a brave man, and he fears nothing. But tonight, even he trembles a little when he finds out what the sponsor has planned for him. But more about that later. First, a word from RCA Victor. If you have a radio lying around the house that hasn't worked for months, chances are you don't have to give it up for lost. Probably it can easily be restored to its original fine performance. If you learn that weak or worn-out receiving tubes are the cause of your radio's troubles... Have your serviceman replace them with top-quality RCA tubes. You can depend on RCA tubes to give you the best reception your radio can deliver. 
So whatever make of radio you own, when tubes fail, be sure they're replaced with RCA tubes. Look for the colorful red, white, and black RCA tube cartons on your serviceman's shelves or in his carrying case. Dependable, long-lasting RCA radio receiving tubes will help your radio perform at its best. Yet, they cost you no more. And now the stars of the RCA Victor program, Alice Faye and Phil Harris. All this week, Phil has been appearing at the Automobile Show in San Francisco. During his absence, the sponsor has hired Martin and Lewis to take his place on today's radio program. When Phil heard about this, he flew down from San Francisco to protect his interests. Phil has just arrived home, and he and Alice are discussing the situation. Alice, what's the matter with our sponsor hiring Martin and Lewis to substitute for me on today's show? Is he crazy or something? Why are you so upset about Martin and Lewis taking your place? Are you afraid they're too good? What are you talking about? <laughs> Why should I be afraid of them guys? Just because Dean Martin is good-looking and sings good and Jerry Lewis is very funny doesn't mean that I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. I just wish I was dead. <laughs> I ain't gonna let them be on my show. Oh, but, Phil, the sponsor's already signed them, and you just have to let them be on. Then I'm gonna be on with them. That won't be necessary. We have a wonderful show lined up, and if you insist on being in it, you'll only mess it up. I didn't mean I know I, what I, you I... mean <laughs> You just don't want me on the show Nobody wants me on the show Now that's not true, Phil I want you on the show and so does Elliot Why, only yesterday he was saying he's gonna miss your singing And the show won't be as funny without you He said that? Uh-huh Ha-ha <laughs> Yeah, good old Elliot I knew I could count on him That boy always stands up for me when he's able to stand. <laughs> he also said that... Come in. Hi, Alice. Well, you already do the show with Martin and Lewis tonight? Oh, we're going to have a great show without Curly. Elliot. Of course, the show ain't going to be half as funny without Curly. Without his singing, what's there to laugh at? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just as well he went to San Francisco. Elliot. Ma'am. Turn around, I'm looking back of you. Yeah, Okay. Hey, it must be a clear day. I can see Curly all the way up there in San Francisco. <laughs> he looks a little hazy, but then he always does. Hiya, Curly. Drop us a card. <laughs> oh, that's silly. He couldn't hear me all the way up there. I heard you. Ooh, he's here. Curly, I thought you were up north. How'd you get back so fast? I flew back this morning. I didn't know there were any planes out of San Francisco this morning. There weren't. Well, then how did you find... I just got a running start and away I went. <laughs> well, certainly good to have you back. Alice and me have a great show with Martin and Lewis as our guests, so don't forget to stay home tonight and listen to it. You couldn't get me a ticket to watch the show, could you? Well, I'm afraid not, sir. The tickets are all gone. Never mind. <laughs> I'm going to be on the show. If it's okay with you... That's okay with me, Curly But I don't know what you're gonna do Jerry and me will do all the jokes Alice and Dean will do all the singing <laughs> Is there anything else you can do? Well, I can play the comb and tissue paper 
Or I can smile like Liberace <laughs> You can't tell it from the real thing Or I'd do a sensational Mexican hat dance I'd do it on a Hamburg <laughs> The curved brim makes it more difficult I'm always going uphill That might be entertaining Never mind I'm gonna sing and I'm gonna show you that it sounds something like this Long, long ago in New Orleans On a little street of dreams There I heard a crazy band Memphis Joe with his hidey home moaning on his saxophone. There was Slip on Slim, you've heard of him, and his lap and slide trombone. Peg Blake, Pete playing hot and sweet on the bacon powder can. As they played, people swayed. This is where the blues began. There was Dog Face Jet with his clarinet hitting high notes up and down. Okey Moak was there with his slick black hair beating his drums like a clown. While the Booga 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 of a big brown jug by a hepcat dressing jeans. This is where the blues was born in New Orleans. There was Big Nose Tess from the greasy vest weeping in her glass of beer. There was Gambler Jake playing table stakes with a seaboat engineer. Natchez Lil, she was dressed to kill, singing love songs about her man. As she moaned, them people groaned, this is where torch songs began. Then the cat named Sam in from Alabama started shooting up the flow. Everybody broke through the pistol smoke for the windows and the dough. While the roar, roar, roar of a 44 busted up those happy scenes. This is how the blues were born in New Orleans. How was that? I don't know. Let's see the Mexican hat dance. <laughs> What's the matter? Don't you people like my voice? Oh, your voice is fine, Phil. But with Dean Martin on the show, the girls will be waiting for him to sing because he has a romantic voice, and you don't. Are oh, you kidding? <laughs> Happens to be my business. If you want a romantic voice, I'll... I'll give him my velvet fog job with a Von Monroe float. Phil, do you mean to tell me you can sing a romantic ballad like Dean Martin? Of course I can. It's a cinch. Listen to this. See the pyramids along the night. Watch the sunrise on a tropic isle. Just remember, darling... All the while, you belong to me. <laughs> See the marketplace at old Algiers. <laughs> Send me photographs and souvenirs. Anybody home? I brought the groceries. Just remember when a dream appears, you belong to Julius, that's not a cow. It's Mr. Harris. What's the matter? Is he having a bilious attack? 
<laughs> Mole is here Look, I wasn't having no bilious attack I was singing in my romantic voice Oh, I know, Mr. Harrison I want to tell you that when I came in and heard that voice I had all I could do to control the emotions that was raging within me Oh, really? <laughs> what kind of emotions? Nausea, heart, brain, and a quiver in me liver <laughs> All right And it dissolved two of me gallstones <laughs> Hey, Curly, sing another chorus and direct it toward my feet. Maybe it'll cure my gout. Sing at your own feet. That hot muscatel breath will drive anything away. <laughs> Don't bother to take your shoes off. It'll get through. Mr. Harris, you're supposed to be in San Francisco. What are you doing back here? I came back here to appear on my radio show tonight. I don't trust that Martin and Lewis. They're liable to get too funny, then I'm going to lose my job. You don't have to worry about losing your job. I don't? Of course not. If you get fired, a guy with your looks, voice, and talent, there's nothing to worry about except trying to find another job. <laughs> now, Julius, Mr. Harris could get another job in a minute. He's a very talented man. Oh, I know. In fact, only this morning I was lying on the couch thinking out loud and I was saying, Phil Harris is the funniest man on the radio. He has the greatest voice and he's the best-looking guy I've ever seen. And I also think... And that's as far as I got. Why? Me psychiatrist made me get off the couch for his next patient. <laughs> Julius, are you going to a psychiatrist? Yeah, my father insisted. He says there's something wrong with my little head. <laughs> Look, kid, if you're having trouble with your head, don't waste your time with a psychiatrist. Take it to a taxidermist. <laughs> Better yet, drill three holes in it and we can bowl it around till we get the kinks out of it. Say, <laughs> Phil, it's getting late. We're supposed to be at NBC for rehearsal. We don't want to keep Martin and Lewis waiting. All right, I'm coming. You know something? I can't wait to get on that show with them two guys. I'll show them a thing or two about how to be funny. Mr. Harris, you're actually going to appear on the same show with Martin and Lewis? Yeah. Oh, I got to go along and watch this slaughter. Who are they going to barbecue this ham hock? <laughs> well, Phil, the cast is all here. Everybody except Martin and Lewis. Oh, they're not here yet, huh? Good. Let's start the show. Maybe we can get it done before they get here. Phil, you really are worried. Are you afraid that they're going to be funnier than you are? It's possible. After all, they have an advantage over me. They're natural comedians, whereas I'm really a lover. <laughs> Just toying with comedy. So that's why I get hysterical every time you kiss me. <laughs> Don't give away our family secrets, or I'll take away your electric blanket. <laughs> Frankly, I am a little worried These guys are big stars And, well, with them on the show Nobody's gonna pay no attention to me Hey, Curly uh, They don't have to be on the show What do you mean? These guys are accustomed to having people Treat them like big stars And make a fuss over them So all we have to do is ignore them Not pay any attention to them Yeah We'll make believe we don't even know who they are And they might get insulted and leave <laughs> That's a great plan, fellas, but they'll never know what we're doing to them as long as we don't tell them. So let's make a pact. Let's all swear not to tell them. Hey, that's a good idea. I swear not to tell them. I swear not to tell them. I swear not to tell them. <laughs> How about you, Julius? I'm too young 
to swear, I'll have to tell him. <laughs> Keep your big trap closed. Now, look, this is important to all of us. Now, it's agreed that when they come in, we'll all act as if we don't know who they are. Now, I don't want nobody Hi, fooling around. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for us to be here. He's here for the pleasure. I'm here for the money. Now, <laughs> uh, Jerry, please. Folks, we feel honored to have been asked to appear on one of America's great family shows, don't we, Jerry? Oh, but of course. It is indeed a pleasure to be the guest of those two lovable personalities, Mom, Pa, Kettle. <laughs> Jerry, their names happen to be Alice and Phil. By gad, I goof. Yeah. <laughs> I shall try it again. It's a pleasure to be the guests of Alice and Phil Kettle. <laughs> and now my partner, Dean Martin, he's the foreign-looking gentleman on my right, will sing for you. Isn't he pretty, girls? Oh, he's such a doll. Go ahead and sing for the people, Deanie, darling. I don't care if the sun don't shine to get my loving in the evening time. Stop, that's enough. Don't make it too long. The money's short. Folks, we like it too long. But you've been such a wonderful audience. We're running over. So good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. We said good night. Go home already. Lady, you in the third row. Put your shoes on and get out of here. Are you college boys finished? If you are, go back to your fraternity house and tell them that your initiation was a big success. Dean, he thinks I'm a college boy. Uh, well, it must be your haircut, Jerry. It looks like a foxtail hanging from a hot rod. <laughs> oh, oh, that's rich. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we're not college boys. Our names are Martin and Lewis. We work for NBC, and they sent us down here. Oh, then you must be the maintenance men. What happened to the two charwomen that usually clean up? Just a minute, buddy. <laughs> we're, we're busy now. You can come back after the show and scrape the gum from under the seats. Dean, he don't know us. What's the matter with him? I don't know. He doesn't look like a drinking man. <laughs> I resent that. <laughs> Look, fellas, I don't know who you are, but you'll have to get off the stage. We got a show to put on there. That's what we're here for. We're the guests on the show. Oh, oh. What type of work do you do? Oh, we're funny men. We tell jokes. We'll give you away, for instance. Dean, let's give him number 22A. Splendid, Jerry. That's a real old whiz bang, Jerry. Were you a pretty baby? I don't know. All I know is the day I was born, my father called the insurance company and said, I want to report an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, he don't like it. Well, Jerry, you see... Uh, I like it. Why he don't like it? I don't know why he don't like it. I like it. I like it. I like her. She's my type. <laughs> You're a pretty one, my dear. We were meant for each other. Let me take you away from all this. Shall we go to a cocktail bar and lounge? <laughs> Wait a minute, Jerry. This is my wife. She's Alice Faye. Alice Faye. Ho, ho. She's rich. <laughs> hey, look, fellas. Like I told you, we got a show to do, and we can't be bothered by a couple of tourists coming All in. All right. Hold it down there, Phil. Break it up. What are you trying to do? You know who we are. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I know who you are, Dean. 
I was just pretending I didn't know you fellas. Yeah. Why did you do that? What's the matter? Don't you want us on a show? You're afraid we're funny than you are? Well, it's not that at all. It's just that we do a family show, and I don't know whether you'd fit into it. Why shouldn't I fit into a family show? I come from a family. <laughs> family of what? <laughs> of course, if you fellas think you'd like to take a crack at this type of show, we're going to be glad to have you. The script's already. Do we have funny lines? Do you have funny lines? <laughs> do you have funny lines? Dean, he ain't answering the question. <laughs> well, you just stop worrying. We'll find out if we have any funny lines when we rehearse the script. Oh, no. Look, fellas, you don't have to rehearse. You're too clever to rehearse. I tell you what. The show goes on in an hour, so you fellas just go to your dressing rooms and relax. A splendid suggestion. A cup of hot tea and my yogi exercises would put me in the pink. Come along, Beanie Darling. And look, don't worry about nothing now, because when the show's ready to go on, I'll call you, fellas. I'll get you. Hey, Elliot. What? Didn't work. We're stuck with them. What do we do now? They're going to be funny on this show and murder me. Why do they have to be funny? Because I saw the script and their lines are very funny. We have an hour in which to make their lines very unfunny. Oh, you mean change the script? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they'd make excellent straight men. Sure. Shall we have a go at it? Phil, I just sent Julius to get Martin and Lewis And you'd better get ready The show goes on in a minute Good, good I can't wait to get started Say, you don't seem to be too worried anymore About Dean and Jerry being too funny Don't worry, they won't be You see, Elliot and I just rewrote their parts You mean you... The comedy lines we gave them Shouldn't happen to H.V. Kaltenborn <laughs> them nothing but straight lines? Oh, I wouldn't say that. We gave them such humorous gems as, what is it? Well, and hark the doorbell. Not to mention such side splitters as, goodness gracious, it's grandmother. Anyone for tennis? And there'll be immediate seating in the balcony, sir. Phil, I don't think you should do that. I really do Well, don't. we're all ready to go on, Phil. You can start the show now. Oh, good, Dean. Good. We're going to do a sketch. Before you start that show, Mr. Harris, I want to know, do we have any funny lines? Now, the sketch is a romantic triangle. Dean, why you don't answer the question? <laughs> Alice and I play a husband and wife, and you guys are her lovers. That sounds friendly, but do we have funny lines? Oh... Uh... Yeah, you might say that. <laughs> what are you crying about? He answered the question. Yeah, but I don't like the answer. Of course you have funny lines, Jerry. Look, you and Dean have all the jokes. Alice and me have nothing but straight lines. Now stand by. Okay, we're ready to go on the air. For your enjoyment, here is the Alice Faye Phil Harris Show with their special guest, that famous team. Tonight, we present a dramatic playlet starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. The names of all other characters in this play are fictitious. Dean Fictitious and Jerry Fictitious. As our play opens, our heroine is at home. Ah, oh, my husband's gone at last. And here I am alone with my lovers, Dean and Jerry. Gee, it isn't every girl who has one and a half lovers. <laughs> Dean, darling, now that we're alone, tell me how you feel about me. 
Pour out your heart and tell me everything you feel. Well... Oh, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and you, Jerry, I want to hear the same thing from you. Tell me how you feel about me. Well... You say it even better than he does. <laughs> I guess I'm more passionate. <laughs> oh, Jerry, you've always been the only man in my life. And every time I look at you, there's one question that comes to my mind. I must know. I must know. What is it? Are you for real? <laughs> not only do they not give me funny lines, they steal my character. Where are the funny jokes already? <laughs> oh, I can't decide between the two of you. You, Dean, you're so manly, so strong, so handsome. <laughs> and you, Jerry, you're so, so... So, so. <laughs> I know what I'll do. I'll just have to... Hark the doorbell. <laughs> Boy, that joke was so big it took two of us to handle it. I know who that is. Well, we might as well face it and get it over with. Come in. Aha! So at last I caught you. Goodness gracious, it's grandmother. <laughs> it's who? Grandmother, that's what it says on the paper here. But that line don't make sense. You think that line don't make sense? Wait till you hear my next line. <laughs> Wait a minute, what's going on here? You fellas are making love to my wife and I'm not gonna stand here and watch this. Do you hear me? I'm not gonna stand here and watch this. There'll be immediate seating in the balcony, sir. <laughs> See what I mean, Dean? Alice, how could you do this to me? You claim you love me, yet I come home and find you in the arms of Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> We're not Laurel and Hardy. Don't you know me? I of course I know you. How could I ever forget you? Every spring I see your face on a bottle of Bach beer. <laughs> He's getting all the jokes. <laughs> Jerry, please, will you just read your answer? It's a big yawk. Now, let's continue. What are you doing in my house, sir? Do you know who I am? I happen to be... Of course, I know you. I saw your picture in the current issue of the Radio Mirror magazine. This is a yawk. Dean, <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny line. What are they doing? This is the assassination what? bit. Well, not quite as funny as the line I have coming up. Oh, this one's a smasher. What is it? Gee, Ma, you've installed a Culligan water softener. <laughs> Culligan is a funny wife. Fellas, please, we've got to finish the script. Why? All I got left is anyone for tennis? <laughs> you got anything left, Jerry? Yeah, I say... Follow that cab! There's a shot and I drop dead! Fellas, will you please? Let's go on with the show. All right, but we're going to do it our way. Hit it, Jer! Sound up! Sound up! Sound up! Sound up! Sound up! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Stop, you can't do that. This is the RCA Victor Show. Quiet or I'll burn you with my long playing Chesterfield. <laughs> hey, Dean, I've been taking dancing lessons, and you know something? 
I can kick over my head. Good, kick it over here and I'll kick it back. <laughs> now we're rolling. Yes. <laughs> Will you please, fellas, you gotta stop this. Mr. Harris, did you know I used to catch cold a lot? And the doctor said when I go to bed, I should wear a nightcap? I tried it for a week, but I had to stop. Why? The ginger ale kept dripping in my eye. <laughs> that doesn't bring down the curtain. Play the music. Everybody out. Show's on. Alice and Phil will be back in just a moment. The easiest and best way to play your 45 records is with RCA Victor's Victrola 45 Record Changer. It's the simplest, surest, automatic record changer ever made. Why, it's so easy to operate, even a child can do it. And here are the reasons. There are no troublesome posts to adjust. Records slip on the large center spindle so easily you can load up to 14 45 RPM records with one hand. And because the Victrola 45 has the changing mechanism in the spindle, records change from the center, the simple, modern way. And here's something you may not realize. 45's the lowest-priced automatic changer today, by far. Ask to see the automatic Victrola 45 attachment. There's no other automatic changer within twice the price. RCA Victor's automatic 45 attachment, which can play through any radio, phonograph, or TV set, costs as little as $16.75 Eastern List price. You can enjoy all the advantages of the 45 system in RCA Victor's automatic three-speed players, too. These have the same ingenious large spindle as the one on the Victrola 45 player. But on the three-speed changer, this spindle is removable, so you can play your 78 and long play records on the smaller spindle. Choose the player design for your record collection from the wide assortment of automatic Victrola 45 players and automatic three-speed players at your RCA Victor dealers. This is Phil again. Folks, I want to thank Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis for coming over here and helping us so wonderfully with our little show. I'm going to tell you something. No wonder these two guys have been so successful because... Well, they're just regular guys. They do so many wonderful things for so many people that they've got to be successful. <laughs> the 1953 Red Cross Fund needs $93 million to help our servicemen and women to conduct the vital blood program and to aid victims of disaster. Answer the call. Contribute generously to the American Red Cross. Thanks, everyone, for being so nice, and good night. Good night, everybody. Included in this program transcribed were Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who may be seen currently in the Paramount picture, The Stew. The part of Julius was played by Walter Tetley. The wonderful songs from two of Broadway's hit musicals are now on RCA Victor Records. From the musical comedy, Wish You Were Here... The original cast sings the popular title song and three other hits. And the stars of Leonard Silman's New Faces sing four of their review's top numbers. Listen to these new show music albums, New Faces and Wish You Were Here, at your record dealers tomorrow. 
They're only $1.50 each on RCA Victor's 45 Extended Play Record. Next, hear Theatre Guild on the air over NBC.